for starters. Matthew chapter 10. Last week we started talking about a well-ordered love. Augustine said a well-ordered love is the secret of godly living. Our big idea was a disordered love will produce a disordered life. And to flip the coin over, we could say positively a well-ordered love will produce a well-ordered life. We defined a well-ordered life this way, to love God supremely and everything else proportionately. And then we talked about various ways to make sure our love is proportional to loving God. We said there are things that we need to love less than they are, and we love them too much. There's things we love too much that should be loved less. There's things that be equal that should be less or greater. And we made some of those distinctions that we got from Augustine. He says... He loves thee too little, who loves anything with thee that he loves not for thy sake. In other words, you should love everything in comparison or in a company with how you love God. He goes on to say, and there's a little book, it's written by a guy named Thomas Hand. I've read it probably ten times. It is a Catholic book, uh, because they take Augustine to be Catholic, Um, but he, Thomas Hand comp, was a compilation, really, of Augustine's writings in the 3rd century. And it's a fantastic book. If you take out of the chapter Praying for Dead People, um, other than that, it's a really, really good book. And I have thoroughly enjoyed it many, many times. And this is where I got all the quotes from. Um, he goes on to say how important love is. And he says, let me just read some of them. I'm not going to speak on them tonight. But he said, a well-ordered love, and then he defines love as the movement of the soul toward the enjoyment of God for his own sake. And I love that because love, Augustine would say, is never idle. Your love never stands still. And it ought to be on a trajectory of loving God more and more. And in light of that, he goes on to say, don't be entangled with the love of inferior pleasures. In other words, don't let things that are far inferior to who God is. Don't let those things be the things that you love the most. Prayer, he said, is the articulation of the love of God. So he, might, he would say it this way pretty strongly. He would say, if you pray little, you love little. Uh, because love is what you do to fuel the passion of your uh, love for God. Sin, interesting definition. Listen to how he says sin is. Augustine says sin is the conscience the conscious preference for God, not sin. Love is the conscious preference for God. Sin is the conscious preference for a lesser good than God. In other words, every time you sin, you are loving something that is inferior to God more than it should be loved, he says. Then he goes on to say the one that I've borrowed for tonight. Remember I asked you in one sentence... Why did Jesus come? Augustine says this, Christ came to change our love. Just think about that. For a while. I want you to see it in a couple different texts tonight. Christ came to change our love. We do not naturally in and of ourselves have a conscious preference for God. We don't. Jesus came to change that and give us the ability to do so. 
One more quote from Augustine, and I'm going to get to the text. Augustine says this, There is no doubt that a man can love himself wrongly. That he can love himself to his own detriment. If we would love ourselves wholesomely, in other words, rightly, we must love God and ourselves more than others. Look what Jesus says, and he's going to use the mission statement. It's throughout the Gospels. I have come. He's going to use it numerous times. And he's going to, what I'm going to say, is he's going to prove what Augustine says is right. That Christ came to change our love. 34, Matthew 10, 34. Now, two times, the first three words, 1034, do not think. When Jesus says that, he only says it twice in Matthew's gospel. The other time is in Matthew chapters 5 and verse 17 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to destroy Torah. I have come to fulfill it. So when he says the phrase, do not think, what he's doing is clarifying a statement. And that clarification always has a contrast or a set of contrasts with it. So he said, what he's basically saying is, I know you think this is true, but in reality, this is true. So what he's saying is, the average person thinks that this is the reason, but the reality is, no, no, this is the reason. And the reason is the opposite of what you think. So keep that in your mind when I read this. Do not think, he says... Because you have the wrong idea. That's what he's going to basically assume. Do not think I came to bring peace to the earth. The average person in the first century Judaism thinks that when Messiah comes, he's going to bring shalom, peace. And the average person thought that the way he would do it, when there would be this monstrous army battle, he would wipe out the Romans and peace would be brought to Israel. Okay, That's what they thought. And he wants them to think this. Don't think that. Okay, don't think I came to bring peace on the earth. In other words, your understanding of what Messiah and who he is and why he came is wrong. That's what he's going to say in these. And it's amazing how wrong they really were and the categories they were wrong in, right? He goes on to say, now he's going to say positive. Maybe he says, I didn't come for this. Watch the next. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Okay? So you think he wants to mean this. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. In other words, yeah, there's going to be a battle, but you're, the people who are going to win are not who you think they are. But that's not what he's saying either. Jesus came to bring a revolution. And every person would say, finally, the Messiah is here. Yeah, there's going to be a revolution. But here's what Jesus would say. Ready? Not the kind you think. This peace I'm bringing and the sword I'm going to use, not the ones you're thinking of, right? I put in my notes, I put, he's going to say in a couple of verses, he's going to say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put people against each other, against, against, against. And listen, please watch. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's taking the common concept of what Messiah is and why he would come. And here's what the common, Israel against God, Israel against Rome, that's how he sees it. Israel against the Gentiles, those are the against categories that everybody thinks in. And Jesus says, see, don't think that way. 
If you think that's what I'm about, what my kingdom's about, you would be incredibly wrong. Okay? So what he's saying is, I I go through all that to say this. That's how important the rest of these verses are. Jesus says, you want to know who I am? You know what my mission's about? You want to know why I came to this world? You want to know what this is all about? If you think it's this, you are so far off, he says. Jesus didn't come to change who rules in Israel. He came to change who rules in your heart. That's what he's going to talk about. He's going to say, don't think this, but think this. So here's the key. Let me have you, if you're writing notes down, put this. Jesus' kingdom is about a completely different kind of fight. It's a completely different battle. It's using completely different weapons, although he uses the same words for them. It's completely different than anything else. He's going to say in a moment when I read the verses that your enemy is not who you think it is. You think your enemy is Rome? I'm going to tell you, your enemy is so different than what you ever believed. And the reason why all the changes are going to occur, why the battle's different, the fight is different, the weapons are different, the enemies are different, why all of those things have new definitions, new meanings, and the reason is because I have come. Because I've come, and it's going to say more in another passage, because of my cross death is going to change everything you thought was true. That's how revolutionary what Jesus is going to say is all about. He's going to say, and let me quote, I wrote down, your most difficult battle will not be between you and those you hate. It will be between you and those you love. That's mind-blowing to anyone listening to him. The enemy will not be Rome. It will be relatives. Wait till you hear what he says. So he goes on in the verses to say it this way. I have come. See, he's going to say it possibly. Here's why I didn't come. Verse 34. Here's why I did come. Let me show you clearly why I came. Because it's not what you think. Verse 35. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. See the against words? They multiply. There's four, I think three or four of them. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He says, see, I've totally changed all the pieces. It isn't Rome, it's relatives. It's not some person you've never met on a battlefield. It's the persons that you know best. And the battlefield is not out there somewhere. It's in here, right here, in your own home, he says. In your village, your community, he says. And a person's enemies, not who you think. They're going to be those of your own household. That's where the real struggle is going to be. Now now listen, why? Why does Jesus say that? Here's what he says. Now mark them down because I think there are three or four here again. And, And this is why I think he uses this pronoun because it's not just the people he's talking to. He wants all of us to be included, I think. Circle them, 37, whoever. Again in verse 37, whoever. In verse 38, whoever. Verse 39, whoever. So it's not just a small elite class of people, serious Christians, I'm saying this too. No, whoever. Whoever, he says. All of us. Okay? Here's what he's going to say. Here's what the battle is. The battle is 
Will you have a well-ordered love? That's the battle. That's where the fight is. It is the most crucial thing that you will ever decide, Jesus says. Because if you don't get it right, you're going to miss why I came, what the reason I came, because he's going to tell us this. Think about it all week long. I came to change what and who you love and the way you love them. That's what I came to do, he says. Look how he reads or says it to us. Verse 37, whoever, circle it, loves. See it? This is the battle. It's not about who you hate. It's the problem. It's who you love. Whoever loves father or mother, and this is key, underline, more than me. He's not saying that the battle is to love God and hate everybody else. No. Remember what we said, Augustine said? Here's a well-ordered love. To love God supremely and what? Everyone, everything else proportionately. So what is the problem? What is the biggest deal, Jesus says? Because you love people like your father and your mother and your sister and your brother too much in comparison to what you love me. So here's what he says. If you love them more than me, okay, more than me, equal to or more than me, what does he say? Then you are not worthy of me. And if you want to get an idea of the power of that statement, read the end of Mark chapter 8. Because people who don't live worthy of Jesus go to hell. That's about as clear as I could say it. He said, someday I'm going to come back with that clouds of glory in heaven and my angels. And he goes, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before God. And then he goes at the end of it, he says, because you're not worthy of me. In other words, if you don't live your life the way Jesus says, and he's not supreme in the affections of your heart, here's the reality. You don't really know him. Not because you're perfect at it, but because, remember, here's what Augustine said, love is never idle, it's a trajectory, he says. So he says, if you love them more than me, you're not worthy of me. He's going to add to it, ready? And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Ready? Verse 38. And whoever, now, now I read this, and this is just me. If you read two lines in a row, you love your father and mother, you're not worthy of me. You love your son or daughter, you're not worthy of me. And then you're going to go, he's going to talk about your loving yourself. He says, and if, I would think the next line would be, right? If you love yourself more than me, you're not worthy of me. But he doesn't say it that way. I think it's what it means. But he doesn't say, look how he says it. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Okay? I would take that to mean this. That when you don't take your cross and you don't follow Jesus by taking your cross, then you love yourself too much. And that's not just a guess. I'm going to show you why that's true. So here he means, here's what he says. Don't love your parents more than me. Don't love your kids more than me. Don't love yourself more than me. And here's how you know whether you're doing it or not. Will you follow Jesus on the Calvary Road? See, we are all okay with him having a cross. But are we okay when he says, my cross is your cross, he says. Now, let me fill in the blanks a little bit more. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Hold your finger here and look to 
Luke chapter 12. I'm going to fill in the gaps a little bit. Jesus is going to say very similar things with some additions and explanations that help us out, I think. Luke 12, 49. I came. Remember the mission statement? Here's why I came. I came to cast fire on the earth. Wow. They're probably going like, yeah, we loving that, Jesus. Fire on them Romans. Burn them down. He says, and would it that were already killed? I wish the fire was already going. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Now he's going to say very similar things. Do you think, mission statement again, that I have come to give peace on the earth? Do you think I, that's why I came? Now, keep in mind, at least came to my mind, isn't this how the Luke's gospel starts? Jesus is born, the angels and the heavenly host. By the way, interesting, isn't it? Heavenly host, host means armies. So the angels at Christmas time, if you see them in the sky, and why people are frightened of them, because they look like soldiers. Swords, armor, right? Heavenly hosts. They're all together, the armies of heaven. Why that? Because the battle has begun. Not just a war between King Jesus and King Herod, but all of us. It's a war going on, and we said there's a fight, right? Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. But the angels said, what? Glory to God in the highest, you finish it. Yeah, peace on earth. Don't we love that song, that phrase? That's what the angel said. Now look, doesn't it seem to be contradictory? At the end, toward the end of the gospel, or the middle of this gospel, it says, I didn't, I didn't come to do that. I didn't come to bring peace. What does he say? No, I tell you, I came really to bring division. I knew no one was going to say that one tonight. I came to bring restoration. I came to bring salvation. I came to bring, and I knew that's what every, and those are all right. Everything you said was right. But nobody says, well, Jesus came to bring division. (laughs) Nobody says that. But it's true. Why? Because he came to change your love. He came to change it. And unless he brings division, and tells you this, see this, you love this too much in comparison to how you love me. See, unless he says, stop, your love is wrong. You have a disordered love. Until you get that right, you can't be in my kingdom and the new family I'm starting, he says. So he goes on to say, from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They'll be divided, father against son, son, same thing we saw before. So what is the sword, Jesus said in Matthew's passage? What was the sword for? I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. The sword is so they can get in your heart and divide. And so when you follow Jesus and you start to give him your all and you really make him the center of your life and you really start reading the Bible and you figure out why Jesus really came, here's what it does. You begin to realize, woo, my love is not as ordered as I thought. And that sword starts cutting down things and shaping it off and moving things out and say, oh, Jesus, if I loved you like that, would I, I have to change this. And I have to change this. And it brings the vision. Jesus says, I'm starting a new family. And here's how it does. Here's how it goes. I'm the center of it all. Not you. Not your parents. Not your children. I am. 
I am the center of it all. And if that isn't what you want, then you can't be in my family. So he says, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. John 12. Verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, so they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went to tell Jesus. And Jesus, and Jesus answered. See, people were going to say, Jesus, we want to see you. Now, does this just not think, it's almost like, does this answer fit? I mean, someone wants to see you, and this is what you say? Because he's going to tell them, listen, you want to see me? This is what you're going to see. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears fruit. Here's what you're going to see me. You want to see me? You want to see what I'm about? I'm about the mission. You know what the mission is? Me dying. See, that goes against what everybody thought the Messiah would do. Not him dying. The Romans dying? Yes. Me dying? No. Jesus says, you better be careful if you want to come see me. It's not what you think. Then he says the stuff we've been talking about. Ready? Whoever, listen, a well-ordered love. Let me show you how you fit into a well-ordered love. Here's how you love yourself. I bet this is nobody's life first. Whoever loves his life, you love your life, you're going to lose it. Remember what Augustine said? There is no doubt that a man can love himself wrongly. Remember the next phrase? And he can love himself to his own detriment. Jesus is saying the same thing. Here's what he's saying. You can love yourself in such a way that loving equals losing. Do you see what he says? You can love yourself so much in relationship to how you love Jesus that that loving equates to losing in Jesus' mind. In fact, the losing is so great that it can be eternal losing. He's going to say it to us clearly. He says in verse 25, whoever loves his life will lose it. Now listen, what do you got to do then? You got to hate your life. And it doesn't mean you hate, your, you know, hate yourself. Just like he said in Luke 14, he says, if you love, the, you love your family, you have to hate your family if you're going to follow me. Does he want you to hate your mom? You go home tonight. We're teaching our teens. When you go home tonight, tell your family you hate their guts. No, but in the Bible, love and hate are not polar opposites always. One means you love this much and you love the other one less. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Well, God didn't hate Esau because he gave him a promise, gave him inheritance, he gave him multiplication in his seed, but he loved him less because he wasn't one of his chosen. So he's Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. I loved him less. Here's what Jesus is saying. You want to follow me? You want to have a well-ordered love? You have to love yourself less, a lot less. So much less than me that it looks like you might be hating yourself in comparison to how much you love me, he says. And whoever hates his life, if you're willing to do that, he says, listen what you'll do. And in this world, you will keep it unto eternal life. This is what's at stake. See the contrast? Ready? Love, hate. 
See it? Lose, keep. This world, eternal life. The whole verse is set up to realize it's this or this. Love your life or hate it. Keep your soul, lose it. How long? This world or eternity. And that's what love, a well-ordered love does. It has the ability to properly frame choices in such a way that you realize that what is temporal and present is not even close, not even close in value to what is forever and eternal. And Jesus says, that's a skill that is necessary in loving me, he says. So he says, love yourself less. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Just like he said in Luke. And, and, and please underline this. And where I am, there will my servant be also. There's only one other time in the gospel writings, and it happens to be in the same book within a very couple chapters from here. Do you remember the other, only other time where Jesus says, where I am, there you may be also? John 14. Yes. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That what? Yeah. So put these two together. The only two uses. Ready? If you will love yourself less in this world, then you will follow Jesus. And you will get to follow him to heaven. He says, if you follow me this way, love yourself less, make me central. See, you will follow me here and you get to follow me there. That's what he's saying to us. And so you have to ask yourself, what does Jesus mean, follow me here? Well, where was he going? To the cross. He was going to go die. And so that's why he said in our passage originally that if you don't take up your cross and follow me, then you're not worthy of me. So Jesus would say this, see, I have a cross. And it's not only for your salvation, hear me, it's for your imitation. In other words, if you want to see me, John, chapter 12, then you better be ready to die with me. Die with me, die to yourself, follow me, die to all your own lusts and passions and desires, he says. Can I close with one verse tonight? Revelation 12. What does it look like when you do this? And how far do you have to take it? Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. Worth memorizing for sure. Again, by the way, war context. Verse 7 starts with a war. In the middle of that section, that text, he says, and they conquered victory. That's, this is a, a fighting text. And they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. How did they do it? Here's how. You know how you live the victorious Christian life? Augustine said it's the secret of a godly life. You have to have a well-ordered love. Here's how they did it. For they loved not their lives. How far? Oh, even unto death unto death. Don't turn there. Listen to this verse. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. Just listen. 
I can find it. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. The devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days. You will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful how far? Same exact phrase. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not something to be grasped after, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took on the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he became obedient unto, say it, death. Even, literally, a cross death. How far was he obedient? Unto death. How far would he be faithful? Unto death. How far should you not love your life? Unto death. That's what he's calling us. That's what a well-ordered love looks like. So, what has to die in my life this week? What has to be slain in my heart? What has to be loved far less than it really is being loved? How do I elevate the love I have for Jesus so it's so surpassing, it's so far beyond the love I have for myself? What would that look like? How in the world can I ever love Jesus that much unto death if I can't even do it in life? How is it possible? Well, it isn't. They loved not their lives. Because in doing so, they lost their lives but gained them. That's how Jesus would look at it. It's ironic, isn't it? It is. Love your lives, but not more than Jesus. That's a well-ordered love. Let's pray. Father, we are in a fight every day. It's more than that. It's every hour. It's more than that. Every minute, literally every second of who will be supreme in the affections of our heart. Who will we love most? Father, the battle is difficult because around us there are competing and conflicting loves. And some of them, in fact, many of them are so good. Some of them are here tonight. We're sitting by some of them. Some of them are out in the youth building. Our children. And God, you would never have us not love these things. But to love them proportionately? To love them and have a well-ordered love is no small task. It takes your love, God, to love you. It takes your love, God, to love others. Forgive us because the truth is our, li- our loves and therefore our lives are often, too often disordered. And we have chaos and anything but peace because of it. And all we have to do is see in our world around us that a disordered love will destroy you. 
And we think it's difficult to love you supremely if we'd only realize that it's far more difficult not to. So help us. Help us as we read your word, as we get on our knees and pray, as we fight against sin. May we do it with an unsurpassed love for you, God. Through Jesus and the power of your Holy Spirit that Romans 5.5 says has shed abroad that love in our hearts. May that be our waking reality, our conscious preference. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.